Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you can contribute there. And I could definitely use some contributions because I'm moving across the country. And now, without any further ado, our guests for today are Jared Murphy and Frank Joseph. Thank you guys for coming on on this Saturday evening. Very glad to be here. Yes. Thank you for having us on. Looking forward to interviewing Frank. This is going to be great. Yes. So one of the topics that, that all three of us have in common, well, there's quite a few actually, but <laughs> the one that me and Jared are sort of searching for is the Lost Cave of G.E. Kincaid. And uh, let's start with you. Like, can, can you tell us what you know about it, Frank? Yeah. Um, I first learned about this uh, supposed cave uh, back in the uh, 19, early 1990s when uh, my colleague uh, Wayne May became the publisher of a national magazine. It's been still in publication after almost 30 years now. It's called Ancient American. And what Ancient American does is it publishes articles about popular archaeologies for average readers. Uh, they're not for academic scholars or anything, although a few of those sneak in there from time to time. And it deals with mostly alternative archaeology, not the archaeology that we're always uh, given the standard narrative about in the schools or on television. What I mean by that is that ancient American primarily deals with the civilizations in America that rose and fell hundreds and thousands of years before Columbus. Columbus was not the first to have arrived here, um, as important as he was. Well, right. <laughs> is regarding the, the uh, cave that uh, is discussed, it relates to an accidental find that was made uh, in the early 1900s. I believe it was 1909. I, I don't have all the facts directly in front of me, but I can remember enough of them, hopefully, to get through this. It was around 1909 or 1911, something like that, that a man by the name of G.E. Kincaid was hired by the Smithsonian Institution to make the first photographic record of the Grand Canyon um, as it was seen, would be seen, uh, by traveling through it down the Colorado River. And uh, G.E. Kincaid was a, a protege and a student of Ansel Adams. Uh, G.E. Kincaid was regarded as one of the top photographers, especially landscape photographers, in the world. Um, now, that comes as a bit of a shock to some people who have been following this story because they've been told that G.E. Kincaid never existed, which is uh, an outside, outright lie, misrepresentation. The man certainly did exist. And he has a real biography. And in any case, G.E. Kincaid 
was hired by the Smithsonian to undertake this photographic expedition, and he went alone. Uh, he started at the headwaters, or near the headwaters, and uh, was successful in making some really great photographs uh, from his boat, and sometimes he'd land. A lot of times, of course, he did. most times he did land, because photography then was a far more cumbersome and difficult affair than it is today. And um, at one point, he was traveling through an area of the uh, Grand Canyon that was uh, very dangerous. And it was so dangerous that uh, Native Americans in the area never went there. They believed it was cursed and that they had lost some people in there. And it is still today regarded as dangerous and as off limits. So when people go to this area trying to find the cave, uh, they don't get permits for it mostly. Uh, I guess not at all unless they've got uh, really great credentials themselves. And it's not some conspiracy on the part of the National Parks District to uh, keep people from finding the cave. It's because this isn't a dangerous area. In any case, uh, the area that he was uh, traveling through, this uh, rather challenging, dangerous area, he saw he was attracted by what appeared, he said, to be a, a very large stain on the side of a sheer cliff. And uh, it looked rather anomalous, but it looked interesting, a stain of some kind, like something had been dripping down the side. Um, he couldn't figure out what it was. So he landed his, his boat, and uh, he uh, left his equipment, most of his equipment by the boat. No, no fear, because nobody's there, not even the Indians would go there. And so he climbed up to, to get a better vantage point uh, of this large stain on the side of, the, of this cliff Dude, face. Hello? Hello? Our sound cut out. Oh, oh. I'm here. You can't hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh. I tried oh I tried asking a question, but um so this the the background um I'm sorry, I I, I didn't hear you do that. I, I don't want to think I don't want you to think I'm just blathering on here. I didn't I didn't hear you ask the question. So please feel free to interrupt me anytime. Well, so <clears throat> Gary and I started talking about this a few months ago and I'm a rock climber along with a researcher uh -huh. and you know the the book it's not aliens worse it's us i'm I, the idea is I, you know we've missed thousands of years of history i'm working on some more books with my co-author jen deo she's an archaeologist and we're you know looking at all the evidences like you said there there's thousands of years of societies living minds mariners astronomers there's so much indication that even in uh, post younger driest time there are societies that have been around traveling that we don't account for so specifically on the ge kincaid cave i just want to make you aware that i went uh with a navajo guide with rex from leak project and we went to the uh through the navajo nation to where the mile markers are for um where the rapids are and where the kincaid cave is allegedly to be and we were going as an initial expedition in order to figure out if we were to uh, descend or ascend, could we locate a cave opening? And so not to jump ahead, but I can tell you that I was just there three weeks ago and Terrific. we did not locate, we did not look right. So we did not locate any visual cave opening. I mean, the, the sandstone, I mean, in short, 
the Grand Canyon has a lot of layers for everyone listening. There's a lot of oxidation of a lot of different minerals. So the canyon's like right. bl- bloody a million colors. And, mm-hmm. you know, 1,500 feet down from the rim or 2,000 feet up, we were at the rapids. We analyzed and we looked at with very detailed equipment the uh, about an eight-mile stretch. But we did not see – we were not able to locate any cave opening. None. Uh-huh. Uh, around mile marker 58, around the qua- – is it Quagunt or Quagunt? Uh, what's the rapids? I can't get the name I down. I don't know. I, I yeah, do so, know. I'm not familiar with that. Well, so the, so the – Based on his description of the rapids where he was at, essentially it was white, it was Marble Canyon, and it was essentially mile marker 58. So because okay. we had uh, locals, the, uh, people from the Navajo Nation, uh, you know, Rex and I from Leak Project went out there, and we, uh, I have footage, I haven't released it yet, but to the be- without thermal imaging from a collapsed cave entrance, we did not locate as of three weeks ago any cave opening. So mm-hmm. what, what's your thoughts on the, I uh, do you, so everyone's asking me, you know, is there, is there not a cave? And all I could say is, well, either there's a cave opening that's collapsed or there's no cave in the exact area that was described in the two articles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, are yeah. you aware of anything outside yeah. of the two articles that were published in the Arizona uh, newspaper or is it the two articles and is it, just not in Marble Canyon? Do you have any, I mean, anyway, what are all your thoughts on that? Okay. Well, um, yeah, we have to sort of jump ahead a little bit on this. Um, and thanks for that uh, update. It's very exciting. I'm, I'm really very glad that you put all that energy into all this. It, it's very difficult to make a, a find like this um, on the first or, yeah. even, or a few times out. You it, Because you yeah, learn we as for you a week. find out. Right. It was about you, a month. I'm sure you understand that when you go out there, you learn so much more. It's like hands-on stuff. I've been involved in a couple expeditions myself, not to, not in that area, but elsewhere. And I know that it takes a lot of patience and uh, so on. So I, it's really, it's great that you're trying that. But to answer your question, um, the last time, no, there are more, uh, there are more articles about this uh, site that were published uh, of course, long after uh, Kincaid uh, made his discovery, but there were a few others in the same Arizona Gazette. It was the Arizona Gazette, I believe, the name of it, or was it the yeah. was it the Arizona Gazette or the Tucson Gazette? I think it was I, the Arizona. I, I probably I think it was the Arizona Gazette, which of course is still in publication, last I heard, and it's still considered a major uh, statewide newspaper, a south a southwest newspaper. Um, there were subsequent articles um, that we tracked down. We had, in those days, in the 1990s, the mid-1990s, we had a really first-rate editorial and research staff, and they got some really great, uh, hard-to-find articles uh, that uh, were follow-ups to him. There were about, if I remember correctly, there were three or four articles, not very large ones, that appeared in the Arizona Gazette, after uh, he um, made his his first uh, declaration or announcement of what he had found. Um, The area specifically that he found it in, we were never able to absolutely determine. It was very difficult to find out. Jumping ahead now to the year 2000, 
which is 21 years ago, almost to the day, I guess, because it was, as I recall, it was in fall of 20,000 at the editorial offices of Ancient American in Colfax, Wisconsin. Uh, we were contacted by a husband and wife team. Um, they were credible people. They were amateur archaeologists, I suppose you can call them that. They didn't impress us as lunatics or anything like that at all. They had heard about the uh, cave from the article that we had published uh, just a couple of years before. They went out, to make a long story short, they went out, they found the site, and, and from their description of it, um, it matched really closely with uh, Kincaid's story that he had gone up to see this stain on the side of a, of a cliff face, and that when he's on his way there, all of a sudden he notices under his feet that he's walking up a flight of stone steps and that these stone steps rose to the entrance, to a rather large entrance, to a cavern. He doesn't describe it really as a cave. Maybe he does. It's been a long time since I've seen that. But um, they said that they found those steps, and it wasn't a remote and dangerous area. And um, when they got up to the open cavern, and it was like a cavern, it was completely closed with an iron, uh, a solid iron gate door, two doors that were uh, strung across with heavy chains that were padlocked. And um, to make a, I'm jumping ahead as quickly as I can, there was no way for them to access that. They photographed it when they, uh, and they said it is a, da a very dangerous area. Um, they were experienced um, kayakers, I think. So it wasn't not completely unfamiliar with what they had to do. When they got back, um, they were not arrested exactly, but they were um, detained, put it this way. They were detained by the authorities, the park district authorities, um, and questioned them. Not, not all that an unpleasant experience, uh, except that uh, all of their cameras were confiscated, returned, and all their uh, photographic evidence uh, gone because uh, the reason given for that is that they had gone into a federally restricted area without permission and uh, nothing is allowed in there and that they allowed photographs to come out that uh, that would encourage other people to go in this area. So that's what, what they did. And then because it's a federal place, there's nothing you can do about it. I, that seemed to me a, a credible story. The last time I heard anything about this was not as a credible story that the cave place was also found by uh, a younger man, a single man, that it was found again. He found the steps, but the the cave entrance had been uh, either had been demolished or had collapsed or something. There was no gate. He found no iron gates there, no chains, nothing like that. This was about 2000 and. 10, I'm guessing. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have it. Uh, it's about 10 years after the 2000 uh, husband and wife team went there. He went there, he found it, and um, but uh, there was absolutely no access to it because the cavern entrance had been completely collapsed. And he couldn't tell whether it was, I say, by nature or by that. And as far as the stone steps, he wasn't even sure they were there. It, it, they were not that clearly defined. There was this like low uh, scrub uh, growth, he said, that was there. And it could have been steps, but he wasn't sure. 
that's that's all I know as far as the discovery end of this. I believe personally, after looking into this story and studying it as we did for quite a few years, that it is absolutely correct. I believe that this place really existed or exists. I don't know. I entered upon this as a complete skeptic because, uh, well, first of all, Kincaid's story came out on April 1st, in 1911, I guess it was. And uh, I thought, oh, this is an, an April Fool's story. But I found out that that's just a coincidence and that we researched uh, Kincaid himself. I got a chance to actually meet the great-grandson uh, great or great-great-grandson of G.E. Kincaid. And so there's no doubt that this man existed. He was a photographer. He, he published books. He just wasn't as prominent as his teacher, Ansel Adams. But uh, I believe that the site really exists. What exactly the site is, I don't know. I'm not sure. The description is uh, very mixed. So I don't believe it's Egyptian. It sounds like it might be uh, Hindu. It might be Hindu. Some of the gods that uh, Kincaid described, some of the uh, deities, do not seem as Egyptian as they seem Hindu. I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Interesting. Well, what um, uh, you know, from the the location that they're saying, I mean, the the reference point for the articles is the rapids. Okay. And, yes, I remember that. And and I think that the uh, the couple we're referring to is likely the couple that brought uh, Rex out to that location. Oh. Yeah. This okay. is uh, Rex is from Leak Project. And so mm -hmm. then we headed out with our Navajo guide and we spent four days, seven, seven days, but four days on site, um, mm -hmm. looking extensively, like you said, uh, if the entrance is collapsed, you're, we're going to need thermal imaging, assuming that it hasn't mm -hmm. been collapsed so far that you can't, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the guides that we were with said that there are, um, different various, well, just in that area of the canyon, crane pads that would have housed and bolted down a crane. Mm -hmm. And so that's all very interesting. But not, none of it, you know, outside of the TWA slash, you know, genesis of the FAA crash in 1956, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that 128 souls are lost and the wreckage is um, not too far out of that area. Uh, mm, there there mm -hmm. was, and then currently, what I found interesting is I don't know if you know this, but as of uh, at least a couple of weeks ago, there are 500 open uranium mining permits, uh, just for the canyon area because oh the canyon God. has been mined for uranium for since the 50s. Wow, no, I'm not aware of that, but it makes sense, fits in. So I do think that the I'm and I'm bringing it up because I you know it's like you said there's these stories out there and then people don't go back and look and it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, we know where it is. We know where it's supposed to be. And I know, uh, I know a lot of really incredible climbers that have all mm -hmm. the gear and this would be well within their wheelhouse to descend or ascend to. And, and mm -hmm. I, I would be perfectly capable of joining them, but I would not trust me to set the routes. They, they would have to do that. And, mm -hmm. Either way, it's like we have all the equipment, so it's like, okay, let's go out, let's locate at least a cave entrance, and then we'll we'll go check it out. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. though, as I started researching, I think it needs to be on the table that what's really sad and depressing is 
uh, the amount of uranium, although they say it's safe, um, there is a uranium tailing pond a few hundred feet from the Colorado River just across the border in Utah. Page, Arizona is home to uh, Lake Powell that they built actually not just for water, for the cities and for the people to drink and for entertainment. Uh, Lake Powell officially holds 39,000 tons of uranium tailings. Oh, my God. (laughs) So... Can you believe that? <laughs> yes, uh, sadly, I can believe it. And 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 so uh, the God. more I was there, you know what's funny? I spent four months, Gary and I got on this topic like four months ago, right, Gary? Yeah, about that. And then I'm like, look, I got these other trips that we're planning for other archaeological work. Uh, I'm a climber. The Grand Canyon's close. Let's go figure this out, right? Everyone's talking about it. Let's go do it. And... God. So we get we get there, and what's interesting to me, and I wanted to bring this up with you, is that I'm telling you, I looked up all sorts of hiking and travel information about the canyon, and what was weird to me was that there's not a single site that you can go to that makes it easy for you to either get to the canyon or navigate the one crappy programmer they hire to program hiking trails around America.com. I mean, yeah. it is nefariously suspiciously difficult to navigate the information to get to the grand canyon it's odd (laughs) not the rim you know the rim is easy go to the navajo bridge go to horseshoe bend but what was odd was when you started looking for well i want to go in the canyon or i want to go on a day hike good luck figuring that out it was so frustrating It's really terrible. And then now here's where it gets revealing is I'm in Tuba City. We're set up base camp. We're traveling an hour and a half to the rim and back. I mean, like we're straight up. Tuba is basically the closest thing almost from where we were entering and getting there to the rim, exactly where the Kincaid, you know, near the rapids where it's supposed to be at mile marker 58. And because no matter what he says, like in the article, it references with within a proximity to the rapids and so we're there and we're we're do, we're doing the work and i keep getting all this information that you would have i would have thought would have come up in my internet searches prior but this is what's odd it's like oh yeah um uh this professor anthropologist mead who runs carlsbad is in an article about 10,000 year old dead sloths that are found in the grand canyon and that oh just so you know everybody out of 270 miles we've only we've only looked at 150 miles one cave we found is 40 miles long and 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 we're not really done he goes permits are harder to get i'm getting old because he said i've been you know i was uh going into the canyon uh doing this anthropological research paleoanthropological and geological research he goes you know i I already do the stuff at carlsbad but in the article for arizona he was talking about how he'd been at since 1969 it was a professor mead it was a a couple month old article now in uh, the Arizona, I think it was the Gazette. And he um, was talking about how much the caves of the entire Canyon have not been explored, that there's uh, no answer on the culture. That's at least 3000 years old called the stick people. And of them, of everything I kept finding suddenly, Oh, uh, government, uh, some representatives are trying to shut down the 500 open, mining permits just for the canyon area there was a massive um strike of uranium that was a an up down uh horizontal 
um, mining operation for one particular uh, area of the canyon that, I mean, it pulled out a lot of uranium, but you need to go through thousands of tons of rock to get any usable uranium. And then what's worse is indigenous peoples have sued um, not oh. the Navajo, but they want a half a billion dollar settlement for cleanup because they're breathing uranium dust. And oh, the settlement, God. Last thing I'll say, uh, the settlement hasn't been paid out. <laughs> so <laughs> now it's supposed to be for everyone listening. It's acceptable levels for you to go canoeing, kayaking and on the Colorado River for your bucket list. But the truth of the matter is what was most revealing about what I found was that yeah, to 1950s and 60s, chain smoking at your doctor's office standards, they were doing okay uranium mining. And then Lake Powell was literally designed to contain uranium tailings, which people are drinking, which they're saying are Ugh. safe. And on top of it, there's tailing piles everywhere that they're, people are mistaking for natural hills. And so what I'm learning very quickly is uh, Arizona and particularly the Grand Canyon area, and I'm all about our government having more uranium, and I'm also liking MRI machines or whatever else needs uranium. Uh, I know that was a magnetic. I was a joke. Sorry. But <laughs> the, the reality is that we need uranium, but everyone wants this beautiful canyon to be, I don't know, somehow in quotes pristine when it's when in reality it, it kind of glows at night. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the people. But do you think that maybe this whole uranium story is just a hoax? You ever oh, see no. like you ever see like close encounters, you know, like where they make it look like a train crashed with some kind of toxic stuff and it's killing everybody? Oh, I definitely believe that there is like there's hoax stuff of just in general, but I can promise you if you start looking into all the articles, all the local articles, the national articles, and you look at the history of mining in the canyon. Uh, it's insane. There's a, and not the famous guano point on the South Rim, uh, you know, where they were trying to, maybe that's a cover story. Maybe guano wasn't the point. Maybe uh, there was other things that they were bringing out of the Kincaid. Uh, maybe that was like a Kincaid cave and they just were using the guano mining. But no, legit, there is a crap load of uranium in this area and they were mining it. And my question would be is that if there was a more advanced or ancient human society, you know, to me, I got to wonder whether or not the canyon was being mined in antiquity, you know, pre-Younger Dryas or pre-Mount Toba or, you know, when these megalithic structures were all up and running. But I just found it interesting that the more we dug for Kincaid, the more what we found that was the true conspiracy was, you know, the massive plane incident that Eisenhower signed into being the FAA because of the plane crash there in the East Rim. And then the uranium mining and the lack of care for local First Nation people and also Arizonians in general, that it really is um, problematic. And on top of it, there are open permits available. So it, some of it's being mined actively and some of it is off limits. I mean, I was able to do further research. There's definitely uh, posted fenced off areas that are like, don't enter, it's radioactive. <laughs> I mean, so open conspiracy, it's like, oh, yeah, there's uh, you know, we're hiding it. No, you're hiding your poor cleanup job in piles of open, dusty uranium radioactive air. Yeah. You know, <laughs> on a breezy day, you're breathing it. You know, it's I don't know. So that that was my frustration with what I found. It's like I went there to find 
I knew it would be difficult to your point. I knew I really, even though we knew the exact location and Rex had been to the rim at that exact point, but we had the equipment to look for it. We had the equipment to video and to record it. We had very powerful cameras and we were able to use those uh, for as much as I can say on the interview. And we can clearly see that there's no cave entrance. There was no staircase. There was no... Um, there that was stuff nothing. has all been modified since then. I think that's all been right. terraformed out of existence. One of the reasons, a cogent reason, why we accepted the testimony of this husband and wife in uh, 2000, when we asked them the details they saw, how are you sure that this is the place, that this is the cave, and of uh, all well, the steps, well... Were they really steps, or could they be natural formation? And they said, well, they look like steps, but maybe they could be natural. But the thing that really did clinch it for us um, was that they described a very old and small-gauge railroad track that was going from the former mouth of this cave, now closed over with these iron doors, and that the small-gauge railroad track looked very, very old. It looked as, and it was definitely grown over to a large extent, And it, but it was long. They didn't know how far it extended, but it extended away from the cave towards the Colorado River. We knew right then that they were at the place indeed because one of the articles that we had, again, from the Arizona Gazette, was that after Kincaid had made his report to the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian set up a... Um, a mining cart and uh, on a railroad track, just like a, a small railroad track, just like a, a, a mining cart that you have going into a, a mine. And they took all, absolutely every stick of artifacts out of this place that they found. They left absolutely nothing behind. Everything was carted out on these mining carts and put on boats that were waiting for it at the uh, bottom of this area on the Colorado River, they left that, well, why wouldn't they not leave that little mine, that little uh, railroad ties, rails behind? And so when they said, well, we didn't know what this was, it said somebody had been mining here. I said, you bet somebody had been mining. That was by the Smithsonian that did that. And you try to go to the Smithsonian and try to find anything about this at all, and they will, they're an absolute 100% denial. None of this ever happened. Uh, they'll laugh it away. Oh, we get people calling here once in a while, ask about it. We know nothing about it. And they, uh, we asked them about the geologist that was in charge of the site after Kincaid had left, the Smithsonian geologist. I forgot his name. I think it was Jacobson or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's it. And, and, they, and they said, oh, no, our records show that there was never anyone like that ever associated with uh, the Smithsonian. So we dug further into the Smithsonian's own records, and we found the guy. And we found, in fact, that he was uh, the man that was in charge of uh, the American Southwest. So he really did exist. It's funny. It's like 1984, the novel by George Orwell. It goes down the memory hole, and these people that are now all politically inconvenient, they just disappear. They never existed. And that's exactly what they've done with G.E. Kincaid and Jacobson. They just, oh no, they, they've never existed. They don't, they never uh, had anything to do with it. It's just all 
uh, imagination, April Fool's joke. So there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, after we spent years investigating this place, although we didn't go out, but we did a lot of paperwork. There, there's no doubt that uh, he described a place that definitely exists. I just wish his description had been a little bit better. But he was he was not a writer. He worked in visual terms, not uh, in in language. And I think he did the best he could. But nonetheless, uh, there's no doubt. Um, and we wrote this up in a, an article for Ancient American, which was subsequently republished in an anthology from Ancient American about this particular site. That it's, there's no doubt that it's an authentic place. Um, but I don't see how anyone will ever get there again. The federal government is determined that no one will ever get anywhere near it. And if you dig it inside, I don't think you'd find anything because the Smithsonian um, report was that they had just absolutely gutted the place. I don't think you'll find even uh, any of the inscriptions on the walls, nothing. I mean, I'm not trying to discourage anyone uh, you know, from finding this place. Who knows? Maybe they overlooked something. There's something behind. But I think the only thing that they left were those iron doors chained up and the railroad track, which all that probably has been removed now, especially after that husband and wife uh, team uh, 21 years ago. Uh, they reported to us, and we wrote it up. But they said, uh, yeah, you, you can write up everything we're telling you, but for God's sake, don't put our names in there. So we changed the – we didn't put the names in, and a, we didn't put the correct dates in. So do you have that report? Uh, well, yeah, we have the, the article. We still have the article Oh, that I has everything you need. Yeah, the one, the one with the Smiths – I mean, well – Okay, because maybe I guess you know what. Of course, obviously everybody's interested in the follow up. I'm planning. Uh, Rex and I were planning on going back in a couple weeks, so if mm -hmm. you would wouldn't mind talking off air, I think we'll um, try to incorporate some new data to try to zero in on. Where well, it is. I, I'd be glad to do whatever I can. We we don't have anything more than I've really shared with you. And the articles that we were able to get from the Smithsonian just listed Jacobson and uh, didn't say anything about him saying, yeah, he was he was uh, an employee working with the Smithsonian and a geologist and all that. Back in the 1920s, we have the date when he finally retired, which I guess was 1926, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, it's it's real. It's, it's, luckily well, for I'm them, just... world. OK, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, if it's well, if it's by the rapids. Um, and we were in the area. I mean, like if, I mean, we explored the Canyon wall to the point where I think, you know, again, we did not see anything, but if there uh -huh. are, if you, if you've spoken with eyewitnesses to the actual location, what would oh, yeah. be more interesting than, well, what would be good then would be for us to have a zoom call and we can, um, I can show them the footage and okay. uh, if they want, they can pull. Oh, I, I, I don't know that I can get back to these people again. I haven't spoken to them in over 20 years. I don't know where they are anymore. I have no idea. Oh, okay. I, can't, uh, I, I wouldn't know how to contact them. <laughs> oh, bless you, Gary. Thanks, man. Um, not that he just sneezed. But <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious to, um, you know, it's not to just put it to rest. Like you said, if they took everything out. Mm-hmm. The question is, are there tool marks? Are there um, any indications? Did they miss a petroglyph? Did they miss right. uh, a, a statue? Anything to indicate that it was a rock cut opening or entrance? I mean, the other problem is, is that a lot of people don't realize that during the California gold rush to Nevada City in Nevada City, 
California, which is where the gold rush started, there were mm-hmm. miners that veered off and there were miners that were looking for precious metals in the Grand Canyon. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. we have a lot of overlapping stories where you have miners uh, looking for, you know, anything. And I wouldn't put it out of line if they were, you know, working in the canyon you know, exploring or found something they thought was optimistic for gold mining or silver or platinum or who knows, whatever they were looking mm-hmm. for, nickel, I don't know. They they could have mm-hmm. been, you know, we have a lot of overlapping um, interests that could have been in a quite undocumentable time, you know, exploring this area. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's possible. Okay. Now, something you might not be aware of that I fo- thought was interesting going into it, and I did find it prior to going to the canyon was um and i thought this was super interesting between the mile markers 38 and 62 the government was very proud of a survey they did which included a geological survey of the actual riverbed they used sonar lidar and radar to scan and topographically map to the bottom of the river that exact area of where the King, you know, Kincaid Cave is at basically mile 58. Oh, for gosh sakes. Isn't I, I, that you know, in, oh, isn't it? Man, that's terrific. <laughs> well, it's so odd because they do it and then it's like, okay, so were they doing it with the whole river? Was it a cover story because they're really kind of like worried about uranium? Uh, is it uh, like, well, you know, maybe the, maybe the river is turning people green, you know, maybe we should, you know, do a better survey, but well, we spent so much money, we have to give a public report sort of thing. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. but, but I have that report. I can, you know, again, I can get your info off air and we can, I can email that to you if you want to read it. Uh, there's I'd video, like to. Or, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's uh, photos, not video. There's photos and it's a full public dot gov a 62 page report of like, why are they looking exactly at this area? Were they looking for like something underwater? Were they, was it just a cover? But I thought the report was very interesting because, you know, on, on, on its surface, you look at it and go, Oh yeah, they're, they're mapping the Colorado river and, and geological <laughs> changes and topography, you know, there's nothing to this. And they're like, wait, yeah. why, why, why this mile marker area? Why, why are they doing that here? Well, they were probably looking for artifacts that had been fallen in there, that had been dropped in. It's possible that maybe a cart got away and fell into the water. Who knows? Something like that. I mean, it sounds like right. they were looking for yeah. other materials because uh, it is a rough area, and it's conceivable that a cart filled with artifacts got away. The inertia of uh, gravity took over, as it were, and splashed into the Colorado River, and they're still worried about that. That's who knows? I wouldn't put that past them at all. But it is curious, as you say, that why this area, why this section, did they devote so much technological interest? I think yeah. that something like that happened. Yeah, you know, it, it, the, it does that, seem to stick out. That kind of matches something that Richard said too, because Richard said he found other artifacts spread out through that area. Well, and you got to wonder because if if there were higher technology societies, to me it just seems like. Okay, if we find uranium pockets there, are we just finding the leftovers? You know, like the yeah. scraps. What yeah. what did they already mine out of there 
10,000, 50,000, 100,000 or plus years ago. I mean, that's, I'm not all up for it. See, I'm not a huge fan of the alien theory. I'm more of a fan of we've missed a large chapter of ancient human history with a global society that was building polygonally and with pyramids. Well, you know, you're you're not as far out as would have been thought even that many years ago because there have been found, as I'm sure you're aware, immense glass deposits below the sands of the Sahara, which are completely inexplicable in terms of a natural catastrophe. These glass, are you familiar with, with have you heard about these things at all? Uh, yeah, yes. Some of the, some of the, it's very mysterious and some of the apparently weaponized looking, uh, well, it, it isn't all that, it, it isn't all that mysterious. Um, as impressive as it is, these glassy areas were subjected to incredible amounts of heat and it spread over a very large area of the Sahara. So much so that the ancient Egyptians apparently mined some of this glass because some of the glass has shown up in um, uh, tomb artifacts, uh, funeral goods, and so forth, that they prized this desert glass is what is referred to. And yes, it was thought, oh, yes. there must have been some kind of an airburst of an asteroid or something like that. There's no absolutely zero evidence for anything like that of happening. The uh, Soviet scientists back in the 1960s were interested in this, and uh, they did thorough tests on uh, the uh, uh, laboratory um, parallel tests to show how could a, a, a large meteor or an asteroid, if it exploded, would it generate this type of heat? Impossible. Spread over that that vast an area, and their conclusion was that it was a nuclear blast. And those that's that so area, that area beneath the, the Sahara, uh, that glass was formed tens of thousands of years ago. There's no way to absolutely date it. The only way they can do it, date it at all, in a very general sense, is through sand deposition. That's all. And the sand deposition is very hard to uh, use your precise dating. It's not like lava uh, deposition, you know, like the, what's going on now in on the Canary Islands, where that stuff can all be dated thousands of years from now, but not sand, obviously, for obvious reasons, flowing around. But they do have some kind of an idea of deposition on sand. So their conclusion was, and other their French scientists, too, came out many years later, or not many, but a few years after that, saying that, you know, the only thing that could possibly have generated uh, this wide swath of desert glass in the Sahara was um, a thermonuclear event. That's so interesting. I, what, one of the things I was meeting with Jen Deo this morning, we you know, because we're going over our new books, and we have been busily trying to find old publications. And I have a publication from a Yale scientist. And I, I just was attracted to it because one of our topics is maps. And I was at a half-price bookstore. And I saw this thing and it said maps. And then it had a publication date of like 1960 something. And what would blew my mind is that it's still a phase where uh, like the national geographic, like sitting right near me is a national geographic from 1922 talking about a pyramid in middle North Mexico that, I mean, they have a full five, six page article of the site. And it, and it literally describes that geologically based on lava flow and what this, 
pyramids buried under it has to be at least eight to 12,000 years old. And they don't know mm -hmm. what to say and what not to say. They haven't self-edited yet. So there's this Yale professor, a Yale press publication. So this is 1964. And I'm looking at this uh, maps of the world and it clearly shows. What was it? Is this a site called Quia Quilco? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. It's great. But the, but the map book was describing ancient maps and it was showing a conversation with the Pope within the first five uh, pages of this really oversized, large uh, study. And they, they weren't even concerned with what, where I am. But what I thought was fascinating was it was a conversation with the Pope in 1300 that described very clearly travel to America, hands down. Oh, wow. They, they weren't wow. implying it. They were quite well aware of it and they were describing it. And I'm like, um, this isn't in the standard narrative. You guys were so... <laughs> To me, I just find it, I always throw this out to every researcher and people like you who have way more experience with this kind of work. But if you have any out-of-date, out-of-published books, I feel like the best info is, you know, pre-1970 because they were, mm -hmm. they just weren't good at hiding stuff yet. <laughs> they were trying. <laughs> but it's even in their own hubristic publications where they're like, yeah, Pope this said this, and they were talking about America that, and, and uh, oops, guys, you know, what about Columbus? He didn't even make it here. It's so weird that we ended up with Columbus Day for a guy who literally never came here. Is that weird? It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. Well, he's in the in this general area, if you, the general regional area, if you want. <laughs> yeah, it's like he, he made he it made almost it. to the continent, almost. You know, <laughs> here's the guy who was almost chosen, and it's like, isn't that everybody who ever died in gladiator battles? Like you, you didn't win, buddy. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, but you just got a participation award. Is he the first guy to get a participation award? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, who tried? Who's a good trier? You're a good trier. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's I'm too, sorry, I digress. True, no, yeah. it's it's great. Actually, it's enlightening. <laughs> it, it 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 is fascinating, but I I do like to compile. You know, you can't own every book on the planet, and I do feel like there's uh, research going on out there where you know we're getting a lot. And and you said something very critical earlier that I think is incredibly important that I don't think a lot of people out there may have caught, which is the information that you analyzed from Russian scientists. And I think to this day, there's a really poor translation in entertainment history channel type stuff. There's a very poor translation of the real way more detailed research that's openly available in the East than the West. Yeah. Well, I think part of the difficulty is that we live in such a politicized age and you better be toting the narrative as you say or else you'll be cut off and that things that used to be a little different in the past it wasn't quite this orwellian type of censorship that we're under today if you, yeah. if you say what's expected of you you'll be fine but if you begin to vary you become suspect 
and in a very short time you're out. And that's why I'm so grateful for opportunities like this radio show because we, I do feel we do have freedom of expression here. Like yourself, you've exercised your freedom of expression beautifully and brought all this great material out. Try to get this stuff out on a mainline, uh, mainstream uh, news network. I mean, you know, you would be just cut off. You know, it wouldn't happen. That's a, it's sad because there's this uniformity that's at work to make everybody believe the same things. And if you don't believe it, you know, you're just ostracized. Tragedy. It's, it, but yeah, it, it yeah. is a tragedy because it's you know, when you create obedience and sheep and you don't teach wisdom. Well, look at what we have. I mean, it's uh, medical illiteracy and a uh, ship of fools. Yeah. And of course, I guess, That's you it. know, I guess we've been at it for a while. Look at our grocery yeah. shelves. They're food deserts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I tried exactly. to buy some string beans today. Forget that. Yeah. Hey, could I buy a product that looks edible, but is edible, but isn't really nutritious? (laughs) Has no food value. (laughs) Yeah, it's just filler, you know, and nutrients are different than, you know, stomach fillers. (laughs) So I wish I had more to offer about the cave. You've done just terrific amount of work there and you've... uh, Put in your own personal energies and thoughts into this, and I'm, I'm glad to see that someone like yourself is a serious investigator in bringing this forward. That it isn't just been allowed to wither on the vine, as it were, to be forgotten. Um, I'll send you uh, the uh, article that we had uh, published about it, and which pretty well much tells what, what we've been discussing here. But you might find some detail that would be useful. I would like to hope so. Anyway. Yeah, and I want to get you that. Um... I, I want to email you that government fine. Um, I, I, I guess uh, Gary, we should uh, hmm? should we wrap should we wrap things up and then? Uh, well, it's still kind of early, man. Oh, good, good, good. All right, do you still because, have some time? Because I was thinking, you know, one of the things that 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 Frank is also interested in is Atlantis, and I, I still myself think that there is an Atlantis connection to this cage somehow. I think all these things are somehow connected with a lot of these unexplained things that have been found in North America. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know that, that Atlantis has any explanation for this cave that's being found in the Grand Canyon. Uh, my impression is that it's conceivable that what we're seeing in this cave, if and we've gone over Kincaid's text numerous times, and we felt that a key to the mystery would be his description of the artifacts that were found, uh, the hieroglyphs that are all over, uh, the strange little shrine. For those of our listeners that are not familiar with this story, I'm not going to uh, by any means tell the whole thing. You've done a beautiful job of that. But uh, this Mr. G.E. Kincaid, this photographer that I mentioned, he found this very large cavern, which is really not just one cavernous room, but was a series of interconnected uh, subterranean chambers, some of them very large. One of them resembled a kind of a cafeteria, he describes it as. Another one was a burial vault, a large burial vault with bodies, uh, mummified bodies laid out uh, 
on these stone beers. And uh, the most interesting and the most detailed um, uh, aspect of this find that he he did describe was a shrine. I guess that's the only way you could describe it, a shrine room, not particularly large. And in the middle of the shrine was a uh, a kind of a circular altar. And the circular altar was surrounded by these figurines, these small figurines that looked rather demonic, the way he described them. And uh, sitting in the center of this shrine was um, what appears to be a kind of a life-size statue of a uh, figure that somewhat resembles um, a, a Chinese or an Asian goddess of some kind. Again, his description is not the best. It's unfortunate. So we've gone over this many times, and our impression is possibly if we if we had to make a call on this, if we had no other choice, it's conceivable that this site was in fact made by visiting Chinese missionaries. The reason why we think so is that there were actually quite a few, uh, at least five that we know of expeditions that the Imperial Chinese launched into America and the, ex- the, the large exploration, the far ranging exploration of America. Uh, we feel quite confident that uh, Imperial Chinese, hundreds and hundreds of years before Columbus, um, arrived here and went especially to the American Southwest for whatever reasons we don't know. Um, just give you one little proof of this because I, I can't really summarize too much over the phone like this. I can't lay out all my evidence for this. Oh, I totally agree with you about opinion. it. Just so you know, I, I'm right there with you. For, I, they're, they're, well, you know, I, think uh, I, I can understand why uh, why our listeners would feel like, oh my God, this is pretty extreme stuff for this guy to be claiming. But let me just give you one interesting little piece of um, actual fact that is something worth considering. Uh, in 1954, there was the excavation of, at that time, the oldest known burial site in Imperial China. It was in the south of China. It was uh, near, uh, I forgot the name, it was a seaport, put it that way. It's a seaport on the South China Sea, very close. And when they found the, uh, the tomb and they excavated it, it was in relatively good shape. One of the things that they found inside this tomb, which they were able to date uh, very easily, um, they found plenty of not just carbon datable material, but uh, the actual texts in our very archaic Chinese, which took them a while, but they were able to crack them, uh, which dated it to uh, about 2000 BC. In other words, this cave, uh, it, it was a cave, it was a cave too, a cave and a tomb dated to uh, about uh, 4,000 years ago, a little more than 4,000 years ago, and uh, which is, you know, they kind of expected to find stuff like that. But the thing that they found in the cave, the cave floor, uh, the tomb floor, rather, was littered with peanut shells. As a matter of fact, it appears that the deceased had been actually buried with a ceremonial bowl of peanuts. So they found dozens and dozens of peanuts well, so what? What's the big deal there? The big deal is that peanuts are not indigenous to China and have never grown there. They certainly were not growing there 4,000 years ago. The only place in the world to get peanuts 
4,000 years ago was right here in America, no place else. So that is hard evidence that there was an imperial Chinese connection, a trade connection as far across the Pacific as you can imagine to America. And the Chinese referred to America then as Fusan, which just means literally the place that's far away. And that certainly is what we were. But the, the abundance of Chinese, of, uh, uh, peanuts in this site. And it, as it turns out, uh, other Im- early imperial sites also had peanuts in there. And peanuts have never been grown. They're certainly not grown in uh, pre-modern times in China. So it's conceivable if we link this information up with the description given to us by Kincaid, that it's possible that this site was an imperial Chinese site that would date it to anywhere from about, well, it's hard to say, but about 500 A.D. I think that would be probably the latest. It could have been much earlier than that. But 500 A.D. is was one of when one of the larger and better documented uh, imperial Chinese expeditions came here. So um, that's that's interesting in itself. That at least gives us a, a possible handle. Could be wrong. Could be something else. I don't think it's Egyptian. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, that's Egyptian stuff there. Doesn't doesn't seem like it, quite honestly. Uh, suggestion no. more is imperial China. Well, and there's DNA testing. There's sedimentary DNA testing now that's coming more common. I think it's going to be really... I'm more worried about them trying to manipulate the... Well, we're just not going to test that artifact, which is... right. You know, there's no going around it. If you can, if you're telling us the flora and fauna of Doggerland, and you're going at sedimentary DNA that's been under salt water for thousands of years to figure out, oh well, Doggerland had uh, this flora and fauna nine thousand years ago. Uh, well, you got peanut shells in a tomb in China. It's going to be really easy yeah. to test that and find out. It would be really easy to do that. It would be, re- but are they going to do it? You know, that's the, that's well, the thing. Well, and there therein lies my mockery of all alleged in quotes uh better schoolings um it's it's <laughs> you have to take the hard questions to say you're a tough school to say you're a good school yeah. you know yeah. creating mountains out of molehills to say you know your your crucible's been tested and pay us hundreds of thousands for a degree it's like that's a joke <laughs> you have elongated yeah. skulls you have peanuts in china you have yep. too many elephants in the room and someone has to have the academic balls to test the facts, not the theories. Yeah. Like Michael yeah. Cremo. I love when Michael Cremo says, you know, if the facts don't fit the theories, throw the facts out. That's right. That's right. It's, just, it's not, it's not okay. But you, and I forgot about that. It's so funny because people will talk to me. There's so many, such a range of subjects for us. And if you hadn't said that, I would not have remembered the peanuts. I, I do recall that. And Mm -hmm. it's just impossible. I was just talking on a show about the, you know, Scott Walter points out in America on Earth, the uh, 9,000-year-old strain of corn that's in Wisconsin. Right. There's a, (laughs) in Michigan, it's like, okay, somebody's been managing corn at least two states wide for at least 9,000 years, and that's just that patch, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, who the hell was here 9,000 years ago doing that? You know, there were two very brilliant scholars that unfortunately are no longer with us. Uh, they passed away. One is Gunnar Thompson, who certainly died before his time. And the other one was uh, Dr. Johansson, 
who was well, he was pushing a hundred, so that's about all I can expect. But these two gentlemen were true scholars, university trained scholars, university professors, teachers, and uh, to their great courageous credit, they devoted the real main thrust of their lives to showing that the agricultural record of North America, especially all the Americas, but especially North America, the agricultural record unequivocally shows large numbers, mass migrations of people from the ancient old world, east and west, thousands and thousands of years before the official discovery of America in 1492. And the breed of corn, for example, uh, Gunnar Thompson was such a specialist, was such a true scientist in this, that he was able to uh, physically define the specific type of American Midwestern corn as found on statues in ancient India. And he was able to show through photographic comparisons the corn as portrayed on these Hindu temples that were hundreds and thousands of years old with a specific uh, variant of American maize. And the evidence, after you see that, there's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that this happened, that the ancient Indians were here. And he also did the same thing with, even earlier with uh, Egyptian uh, variants so of maize. So there's no doubt that these ancient peoples traveled here. And people say, well, how come we don't hear anything about this? How come the ancients didn't write anything about this? The reason, and that's true, that the ancients wrote very little about these things, because America then was an industrial secret. You did not want to tell everybody about the abundance that was over here because you'd have wars and conflicts and monopolies starting. And so, yes, this was uh, a secretive enterprise that these countries, these old kingdoms were jealous and protecting. Well, that lends me to wonder if, you know, there's always been, I know there was just a news article that just pissed me off about, you know, genetic evidence is in, uh, you know, in, uh, Native Americans were not from Japan and likely came from right. Siberia. You know, there's this constant bang my head on the wall. I It, it, it makes me wonder, you know, with the assessments of blonde haired, blue eyed natives in Montana slash upper Midwest, uh, upper mm-hmm. Northwest and uh, of course, the moon. Uh, there's a million different stories of different, uh, whether they were Viking or, or Templars or fill in the blank. But I'm wondering if in more ancient times, as we're talking about these mass migrations, you, you got to wonder then how successful those settlements were and what did bring about their demise in that are, are we looking at indigenous Native Americans as really just the survivors of some of those uh, lineages that, like, did the Indians, did India establish a colony in Seattle, or mm-hmm. were the Chinese here also? Again, did they just fail at colonizing, or did they do it in mass, and then we just are refusing to look at the DNA evidence for it? These are extremely interesting uh, questions. They're penetrating questions, and they lead us to think. Um, we've gone over these same questions for quite a few years at Ancient American, and uh, we don't pretend to have all the answers by any means, maybe none of the answers. The reason why is because it's extremely complex. 
and the complexity is in human nature. Uh, people came here for different things, for different reasons. The Chinese, we're under the impression, came here uh, for uh, some economic reasons, for jade, for example. The greatest jade deposits in the world are in Canada, in British Columbia. They're not in the Orient, and yet jade was a sacred mineral when it came to the Chinese. The Chinese always had a hard time getting enough jade. They loved to make many things out of jade, of course, and they needed a good supply. So that's one reason why they came here. There are jade deposits, as I said, the largest jade deposits in the world are in Canada, especially around the British Columbia area. But the main thrust of the Chinese coming here was not economic. Uh, it was missionary work. Um, we're talking about the, of course, pre-Christian missionary work. Um, they believed in the principles of various uh, Chinese uh, philosophers who had not religions so much as ethical um, disciplines and that these ethical disciplines, if everybody in the world would become Confucian, for example, that would be the end of slavery and war and everything like that. They kind of believe that. So that's part of it. When you go on a missionary trip, uh, your, your host people that are meeting you may object to what you're saying. There's nothing more contentious than religious discussion. And that has always been the case, it looks like. So, yes, many of them failed, or else... They would just, others would come here for what they wanted and leave. Like for the example, the Egyptians. The Egyptians came to Colombia, especially. I believe, the, along with Gunnar Thompson, that his evidence is strong that the Egyptians came to North America for various uh, foods that they could bring back. That's true. But the big uh, thrust, uh, the transatlantic thrust of ancient Egypt was in Colombia and northern South America, and that was for cocaine. They came for large amounts of cocaine, which does not grow in the ancient old world. It certainly does not grow anywhere in North Africa. And cocaine residues have been found in literally thousands of Egyptian mummies, thousands of Egyptian mummies. Were these all hopheads? Were these guys all hooked on cocaine? No. The Egyptian medical establishment needed cocaine to make effective anesthesia. That's what it was used for. And the Egyptians came, the Egyptians even talk about uh, their circumnavigation of Africa to, uh, to come uh, to, uh, to get the Canary Island current that will take them uh, quickly and safely across the middle Atlantic in the best possible way. And they came for the cocaine. That was their they're a big thing. So they only, they didn't work, were not interested in making a colony. They weren't interested in transferring their civilization. They weren't interested in the natives at all, except how the natives could be used to uh, bring them the copious amounts of cocaine that they needed. That was all they were interested in. And they wanted to keep that a secret. Uh, there, that seems to be the case with all these uh, peoples that we follow, whether the Egyptians or Phoenicians or Carthaginians, the Carthaginians regarded uh, their holdings in America as a real important state secret. One of the proofs of that was uh, in the year, I'm thinking, uh, 40, 44, no, 44 or 50 BC, there was a Phoenician, and this is a true story, the, there was a Carthaginian, this was before the fall of Carthage, so it would have to be earlier than that, it would have to be like about 100 BC, 100 or later than that. There was a Carthaginian freighter 
that was leaving the Mediterranean, and it was on its way out through the Straits of Gibraltar into the Atlantic. Very few people went out into the Atlantic because the Atlantic is a dangerous place, and apparently there was nothing there, right? A Roman um, admiral saw the Carthaginian freighter on its way out to the Atlantic and was curious, where is this vessel going? Why is it going out in the Atlantic? The uh, captain of the Carthaginian ship saw that he was being trailed too closely by the Roman vessel. And the the admiral, uh, the Roman admiral got too close apparently, and the Carthaginian captain scuttled his ship rather than allow the Roman to follow him anymore to see where he was going. When the Carthaginian captain returned to um, Carthage with his crew, he was given a hero's welcome. He and his crew were given uh, extra bonuses. They were reimbursed completely for the loss of their ship. It was in, all in a public ceremony. And the reason why this was done, because he had sacrificed his ship and even risked his life in order not in order that the Romans could not find out where he was going. And that is an indication of how secret the passage to America was was kept, because really, what would there be outside of the Mediterranean? Why would you want to go there? They're the only islands there are the Azores and the Canaries, and they don't have very much to offer. But if you want to go across the Atlantic and you know how to get there, you know the best sailing route, there's plenty of stuff here to get, a lot of valuable materials. And what made the Carthaginians the wealthiest people of their time? Imports. That's something even mainstream historians will not begrudge you. The Carthaginians became very wealthy because they're imports from all over the world. And how did they get those things? Well, that was their, that was their trade secret. So I guess the Romans must have figured it out because we have the Amphora Bay in Brazil. That's right. That's right. The Romans did figure it out. And they did come here. The Roman impact on the Americas, North and South, is just beyond question. The, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, the number of Roman coin caches that have been found, uh, especially from the East Coast to the Mississippi, that's where they're mostly found. Uh, they're in the dozens, literally in the dozens. And, and you can go down. For, yeah, that's for everyone listening. That's that is a lot of correct uh, lottery wins. Yeah, and you can go down to the uh, a real mainstream museum. I think it's one of the best in the world, and I'm, I'm sure many people do. It's the Anthropological Museum in Mexico City. It's a fabulous, fabulous museum. And there you can see a Roman amphora. It was made about 100 A.D., probably a little later than that, between 100 and 200 A.D., a Roman amphora in its own glass case. And you could, the, the caption underneath is, found off of Veracruz. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's the amazing. real thing. It's the, and it's there. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The Americans especially are the most uptight about this whole thing about Columbus. Other parts of the world, I found they're quite a bit more open. They're open to these things. Even in, in other parts of America, when I was down in Peru, I was surprised to see that uh, the official record for the beginning of civilization in Peru and Bolivia it was much deeper in the past than it is here in America. 
you can go to Mexico too. That the State Museum in uh, La, uh, Veracruz, as a matter of fact, uh, an Olmec museum, which says that the Olmecs date back to about 3000 BC. Well, that's absolute heresy here in, in the United States. You cannot say that at all. The Olmecs are go back only to 1500 BC. So, yeah, there are more open minds, I think, outside uh, than in America. Everybody has to think and behave the same here. And if you, like I said, if you step out of line, uh, you're out. So, do you, do you see that falling apart now? I mean, do you see it? I, I, well, I don't of course, want to just the whole thing is our whole civilization is falling apart. Everything is unraveling. We're we're living in the age of dissolution. This is it. It's happening. <laughs> Of course it's falling apart. That's that's the big mantra of today, really, is disillusion, dismemberment. Yeah, just wait to see the next generation coming up. It's going to be real dandy. But that's always what happens with societies that get so uptight like this and that are so divorced from the truth and nature that uh, they self-destruct. That's what's happening here. Right. There's no getting away from it. That's totally you true. <laughs> the, the, you know, I, I don't, don't know how much time we have. I don't want to monopolize here. But there's just one thing I want to throw out, and I think it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, and this fact, and it is a fact. It's a couple of facts. It's just they're just mind blowing. Somebody asked me the other day, what are what are the most what's the most mind blowing fact you've ever come across when it comes to the ancient world? Well, this is it. And, and maybe you can top it. I don't know. I hope you can, but I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I've been really interested in Egypt's Great Pyramid all my life since I was a kid, and I've sort of known for a long time exactly where the Great Pyramid is, uh, and the geographical uh, measurement is twenty nine point nine seven nine two four five eight degrees north. Okay, it's got to be somewhere, right? Well, let me throw this out to you. <laughs> Remember that number, 29.9792458 degrees north. That's okay. where it is. Well, guess what, folks? The speed of light, the speed of light in a vacuum is 29979292 Four five eight kilometers per second. In other words, the set of numbers for the geographical location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, those numbers are precisely the same as the speed of light. Now, is that only a coincidence? What are the chances of, of a coincidence? How many numbers are here? One, two, three, four, five, six, nine numbers. Wow. I have a better chance of winning the lottery. How about that? So the only thing is, is this an accident? Is it a wonderful coincidence? Or did native dynastic Egyptians deliberately incorporate their understanding of the speed of light into the Great Pyramid's northern alignment? Or three, was it incorporated by some unknown pre-dynastic culture bearers possessing a familiarity with astrophysics superior to any comparable scientific knowledge available to indigenous Egyptians. Now, the speed of light was only determined to that degree, 
to that degree, to that decimal degree, in 1983. <laughs> that is, that that's pretty fascinating because uh, it, it it everything about the pyramid shows technology beyond um, dynastic peoples. It's pre-dynastic. It's it's not primitive people that. You know, I think primitive people came, they adapted it, they repaired it, they certainly had their bad days and re-repaired it, or, you know, things came in and out. I mean, they were in possession of that. I think they mutated it. If um, Solon the Greek was correct, then the, you know, the dynastic king's list is 36,000 years, but was it a few thousand? But can you imagine a a technology that would have been able to determine the, the how is that possible? There is a wonderful essay on this by a brilliant guy. He's so brilliant, I can hardly understand his work. You better know your math when you pull up his webpage. His name is Robin, Robin James Spivey. And he's a professor at the University of Wales in Bangor, England. And he has... A, a web page is called The Great Pyramids, Conspicuous Speed of Light Latitude is No Accident. And he goes on for about 10 pages explaining that this is no accident, that they fully understood how to compute the speed of light to this nth degree. There is a fourth possibility, and this I actually think is probably more credible that somebody from some other place gave it to them. I cannot imagine any human technology 5,000 years ago able to determine the speed of light to this nth degree. So I think that it's conceivable that somebody from someplace else, and I, I don't know what they're time travelers or ETs, or somebody came down and shared that information with our ancestors 5,000 years ago, and they thought it was important enough to incorporate into the latitude of their Great Pyramid. What do you think of that? It's, uh, it, it's <laughs> I, Well, I have one for you also. Gary knows this. but Good, uh, good. That, what was his name again, the researcher, the, the, the professor? The researcher's name was Robin James Spivey, S-P-I-V-E-Y. He's a professor or researcher at the University of Wales. So this is this guy's no slouch in Bangor. Um, I can, I'd be very happy to send you or anybody his web, uh, not a web, it's called ResearchGate, and his paper is there. Like I said, you yeah. better brush up on your... On your math when you read this, but it's it's pretty good. He's got I've got a couple quotes from him. Uh, he says uh, the pyramids of Giza are aligned within 0.05 of true north, which is to say precisely true north. He says in 1862, Foucault, you know Foucault's pendulum, that sort of thing, had used a rotating mirror to measure the speed of light with an accuracy with a general accuracy, but it wasn't, the, the speed of light was standardized only as late as 1983. Okay. Giza, where the pyramid is, lies at the intersection of the world's lengthiest, lengthiest great circle and the world's lengthiest parallel over land. It lies at the intersection of the longest great circle traversing neither sea nor ocean with the longest path. What he means to say is that the Great Pyramid is located precisely at the center of the world's land mass. So. so it is interesting that that um, 
I think a lot of this is pre-dynastic. It didn't happen, like you said, that there weren't dynastic peoples 5,000 years ago were essentially literally banging, well, in the case of the Egyptians, banging diorite balls. But yeah. the, the, the work that put that pyramid together is pre-dynastic, and it's maybe even pre-Mount Toba, uh, I think, pre-75,000 plus or minus 1,000 years ago, pre-Junger pre Dryas, for sure. But at the same time, my the science that led me down this road was I spent three and a half years working on a book and I'm not saying it tops it, but I think you'll find this interesting. Have you heard of Terra Preta? No. So I am two days into my research, which is going to turn into three and a half years. And <laughs> I'm, I wanted to learn about the Paracas of Peru, which were the oldest naturally mummified remains. There was right, Paracas, right? Yeah. right? So some were 9,000 years old. I'm like, okay, well, I'll start with that. I'm going to write a book on fiction. And two days into my research, there's an, uh, a 1990s uh, show that's on who, at the time, I did not know who he was, but Colonel Percy Fawcett, you know, Brad Pitt played him. Oh, in yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Sure. Yeah. So I am going to watch a show. It's like, well, it's about, maybe it's about the Paracas. I mean, I'm reading, I'm writing, I got this on in the background. Well, I, uh, you said Paracas. Yeah, the, the Paracas mummies. Yeah, I, I, I know yeah. a little bit about them. Yeah, fabulous. Well, and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to learn a little bit about them. I'll watch the show. Well, the archaeologist that, uh, the Brazilian archaeologist leading the talk show guy, you know, the D discovery show guy, is, stops along the side of the Amazonian River and says, oh, I just want to show you this quick before we get to the last place Colonel Percy Fawcett was seen alive. This is called Terra Preta. It's an ancient engineered soil, and, and it can be over 20 feet thick. Uh, it has piezoelectric properties. It filters heavy metals. It filters carbon dioxide. And it self-propagates, and it's and it and it's the richest growing soil on Earth. And soil scientists have looked at it for a hundred years, and we don't know how to make it. But let's go look for Colonel Percy Fawcett. I'm like, stop the press. I spent <laughs> three and a half years, and I remember when I went all dietary paleo that there are are uh, black markets for getting this soil out of. There are modern versions that are called biochar. So if you and I were going to open an apple orchard, we'd want a biochar that would incorporate different burnt materials that would help us grow apple trees or help us grow wheat. So there are modern versions, but there's nothing like Terra Preta. But here's what's interesting. In Brazil alone, they estimate an area twice the size of Spain has Terra Preta. Now, that's just Portuguese for black earth, but it's an engineered soil and they've done testing, which again, like you said, academics in the, in the West here don't want to touch it because of what's been published. They're like, well, it's at least 6,000 years old, but what's problematic, which is going to blow your mind. I hope is that Terra Preta was found in French Guiana. It was found all over Northern South America and you're going to love this. It's found in North Africa. It's found in South Africa in the savannas at where, again, there's a massive pop. I spent a month in South Africa at uh, Stone Circle Lodge and exploring and looking at all the ruins and foundations that are there by the hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. But that being said, there is Terra Preta specifically. So, you know, we license a franchise. It's like having the identical McDonald's food. So it's the identical recipe, but it's a it's a form of soil that's found in other engineered formats in Europe. But Terra Preta itself is found in Central, South, 
North Africa, South Africa, and Australia, the same soil recipe that has to be man-made. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. I was really ignorant of that. I, I'm not familiar with it at all. And uh, could you spell that for me, please, to make sure that yeah. I get that correct? Uh, T-E-R-R-A, and it's P-R-E-T-A, Terra Prada. And I've been extensively talking about it for the last couple of year, year and a half, uh, but mm-hmm. it's the missing element to... Um, we're not starting with the facts. We're starting with these glorified opinions and stories and myths. And, and and it's all, it's great to go into the anthropology of, of, you know, we have a Hollywood, Bollywood, fill in the blank, uh, Hong Kong movie theater system. The reality is that humans are good at telling stories and we love stories and, and we have some hunches on our stories. But the reality is that when you table the facts, this planet was once much more terraformed, much more vastly by a society that was managing, I think, a lot more people. And I think it wasn't just using Terra Preta to grow plants and animals, but or like growing food. I think they were using it to like connect to uh, integrated like bio circuits like the Nazca lines. And they were using the engineered soils to not only uh, connect through to funguses and bacterial networks, but they were using it to connect to the polygonal structures, including things like the Great Pyramid, where the soil consistencies were really seismic, what's called seismic metastructures, um, right down to nano-sized particles that would help with or with not with earthquake mitigation, but also with the piezoelectric properties. We're talking about a terraformed planet with an advanced ancient society that was literally programming um, what we consider now superhuman abilities, but that's kind of the premise of my book. And uh, um, I know a lot of people, a lot of fans, a lot of people have heard that, but I would love to talk to you offline. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to know. It's like, I, I, I would, lo- uh, love to. I would, I would very much like, I look forward to reading your book. It sounds just really fascinating. And I'm sure it's a, what you've shared with me is just a, amazing. Although it, it fits in, doesn't it? With this idea of a, global society or civilization or polity, whatever you want to call it. But there's some kind of deeply ancient globalization of some kind yes, that was definitely yep. going on. And and you have just brought a new piece of the puzzle, a big piece of the puzzle that I, I did not know about. There are, are others I've been collecting over time, but I want to thank you for that because uh, that You're seems welcome. to fit in very well with this very, very ancient uh, organization of the planet and whether it was done by human beings or somebody else, I don't know, but there's no doubt that it did exist. And, uh, Michael Cremo, I think is who you mentioned earlier. He's definitely in on this and is one of the great scholars of our time who's been able to show the antiquity of human beings goes back. Much oh yeah. Further totally than agree. I imagine. So yeah, it's and- really great. Well, I, I think your book will, will be a great success and certainly deserves I, to be, I, it sounds like. Oh, well, that's great because I my, my agent has it in being reviewed at uh, Inner Traditions. Uh-huh. You should you, you might want to put in a good word for me. <laughs> oh, well, I don't, I don't think you need any help from me. I'm sure it's going to do really well on its own. Sounds really just great. Is that who your, your publisher is, Inner Traditions? Uh, it is now. It was out with another publisher, and now it's under review. 
actually. So nobody, uh-huh. nobody actually knows that, but it's under review right now for a new edition. And I'm, we're working on three more books. So I'm going from zero to five, I hope soon or four. And then, um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah the, sounds just great. Yeah. The audio well, book is has a very uh, good, uh, distribution and their production values are high. So I'm sure it'll, they'll do a fine job on it. Yeah. My, my book was out, uh, with a prior publisher for just over a year and a half. And then, um, uh, my audiobook is available on notaliens.com and I've been publishing, uh, segments. It's an inclusive read. So it describes the photos and the captions. Um, but I, you know, so the audiobook is still available, but the, uh, when I put it in a review, it looks like, you know, it's getting a bump up for distribution. So I'm, I'm excited about that, but I, I think it's always fun to meet other researchers and people who have been doing it. Like I feel new to, even though it's been a lifelong pursuit, you know, it's only been a professional pursuit for me for like the last four or five years. So uh-huh. uh, being able to co-host shows and meet people like you for me is a really exciting, um, it, it's exciting. And it's also a privilege. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and also, um, just it's 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 crazy to look at um i guess i should ask you while we're still chatting it, i mean what's it like for you to put together a book it's very hard work and because uh, the, the 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 hardest boss you'll ever have in your life is yourself the most yeah. demanding and uh, that's good that's the way it should be um i love writing very much i'm an addictive writer i have to write even if i know it's never going to be published in fact, I've written a lot of things I know I'll never be published. But uh, so the the writing process is wonderful, but uh, it's hard, and it's hard to make a living off of it. Believe me, it's very difficult. But uh, if it's what you love to do, then it's something that you have to do. That's I think the great lesson right. of of human life is to the important thing is life is very short, and uh, you might as well enjoy the enjoy it best by doing what you like to do best. That's that's not hedonism. That's not selfishness. It's it's hard work. You know what 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 is your work? What is your proper work? What do you want to do? Not what society wants you to do, or uh, even the economic demands on your life. You know what do you want to do? And then you'll do good at it. Whatever you like to do, that's what you'll do best. That's super interesting. It's I think it's really good advice. I think so many people have jobs or they mistake a job for a career or they think they give up a job and they get a career, but really they just get a higher paying job. And I think establishing, I think this world, like you said earlier, if everybody would pick up a certain philosophy or one or the other or agree, there's a lot of things we could end. But at the same time, I think that if people actually pursue their passions over just being an ant, we would still have everything we have. It's just everyone would be a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think that's the way to go, really. You don't want to be at the end of your life and say to yourself, well, what was that all about? Or I didn't do what I really <laughs> wanted to do. You know, I didn't do it. You know, I did what I was supposed to do, but I didn't do what I really wanted to do. That's tragedy. That's the human tragedy. It, so you it, nailed it. That's that's it. Yeah. So just like in, in Braveheart, in the movie, you know, uh, I think there's one point where the character says, uh, most men exist, but very few of them live. Uh, that's, that's, I think that hits the nail on the head, really. Very yeah. few have lived. So <laughs> you can't have everything. You know, you can't be wealthy and work at something, a job you hate, have a lot of money 
but no time to enjoy it. Or if you do what you want to do and be broke all the time. So you just have to realize what is it that you really want to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, either way, your happiness is going to be, there's really a hollow feeling if you're not doing what you love. That's right. That's right. But uh, there are other riches. There are others, other forms of wealth than just the kind you can put in the bank. I can tell you that of all the books that I've written, and I've written a lot of them, the money I got for them has been spent a long time. It was spent before I even got the check, actually. It's gone. But whenever I get, uh, even today, I'll get a, an email or a letter from somebody saying that they enjoyed the book or they found something worthwhile in it. That's the real reward that is yeah. something that nobody can take from you and you can't spend it. And it's, you'll get that too. When your book comes out and people enjoy, you've connected with total strangers. Uh, that's the magic of writing. You've connected with total strangers and something in your heart and your mind has gone into their hearts and their minds. And then they'll get back to you about it or you'll see a nice review. That's, uh, that's what it's all about, really. Yeah, it's been really fun the last time. I mean, I, I came back from Africa. My book came out originally at the um, end of January in 2020, and my first interview was Coast to Coast. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a, that's great. Um, yeah. That was fun. I mean, and then, you know, co-hosting this show, meeting Gary and, you know, what we do on Everything uh-huh. Imaginable and the other show. It's been really fun because I'm a field researcher. I'm also, so it's the same thing. It's dividing time between writing, but also going out in the field and, I've been uh-huh. promising fans this kind of a more coherent documentary about exactly this subject. Like what we need to do is, you know, do core sampling and we mm-hmm. need to know how the foundations of these polygonal structures are built. Cause I have a feeling that we've literally been walking over technology to go look for mummies. When in reality, the true gold is in the designs of these microscopic to large seismic metamaterials that they were using to not just uh-huh. do earthquake control, but energy management and it's in the right it's going to be in right. the tamped soil not only under the buildings but throughout a complex now not not obviously where dynastic peoples have dug it all up but uh-huh. um but I, I do think there's a lot of um no matter what they've tried to hide or not talk about you you know uh unfortunately they can't literally move ball back or socks <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> Hurry, dig! They're testing. <laughs> hide, 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 hide. It's just not going to work. That's why they want to con- control what people think, so that when these discoveries are made, people will automatically dismiss them because, oh, they're just conspiracy theorists, things, you know, or those are just lunatic fringe pseudo archaeologists, and so there are all these emotional and mental triggers that they have being set up. So they can't hide it, but they can make it seem for most people that it isn't anything really, you know, it's all done yeah. with ropes and levers, you know. <laughs> well, Gary, what are we going to do? Well, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, but first, um, Jared, where can people find you? Well, you can find me at notaliens.com. And like I said, my book currently is in audio format until it's re-release. And that's in my members area. Please sign up, help support the channel or Not Aliens on YouTube or which, you know, please subscribe. And then, of course, Not Aliens on Rockfin, some exclusive content there. But that's the three places to find me. And, of course, on everything imaginable also. (laughs) And how about you, Frank? (laughs) 
Well, uh, I would just suggest that anybody that's interested in what we've been discussing tonight, they can go on Amazon.com and they can find my books there. My most recent book is called Ancient High Tech. It came out last year, and uh, that's, that one's selling pretty good. So uh, anybody that's interested, go to Amazon.com, dial up Ancient High Tech or Frank Joseph, and uh, you might find something you're interested in. <laughs> Awesome. And I'll post a link to that too, all in the notes to this episode so my listeners can check you and Jared out. And we're definitely going to have to do this again. This was a blast. This is a great episode. So, yeah, I thought so. I enjoyed my time here very much tonight. Yeah. Thank you both. And hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Let me get the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com.